Now, I don't think I have to convince anyone here that suffering is not something that we, we want to pursue. It's, it's, we try to avoid it whenever possible. No one enjoys a toothache, and so hopefully you go to the dentist a couple times a year. Hopefully you brush your teeth and floss uh, at least twice a day. Uh, anyone here not do that? Even if you did, you would not embarrass yourself by raising your hand. But, so no one wants to endure the pain of a sports injury. And so uh, when we're physically active, we, we warm up, we stretch, we, we do whatever we can to protect ourselves. Broken relationships can sometimes be devastating. And so we try to love well and we try to heal small conflicts before they develop into bigger ones. And there's nothing wrong with any of this. It's generally wise and good to avoid suffering whenever we can. But there's some suffering that just can't be avoided because it's inevitable. And that's the suffering that comes into focus with the account of Jesus' last hours before his death, the account that we look at today. So it's fairly easy to estimate the clock times of the events from Monday, Thursday, through Good Friday. And there are several folks on the internet who have uh, done a good job at that. And one of them places the events recorded in John 19.1, which was the very first verse that we looked at today, around 7.30 in the morning. And if you remember back to what, we, uh, what Carolyn read a few minutes ago, John 19.1 is where Jesus is before Pilate. It's actually not the first time that he's with Pontius Pilate during those many hours when he was going through a kind of a series of, of mock trials. Um, but uh, it happened around 7.30, and that was several hours after this uh, special period of intense suffering began for Jesus. It began with the sobriety of watching Judas leave the, the Last Supper to go out and gather the Jewish soldiers, which probably happened around 7 or 8 o'clock the night before. Then Jesus takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he, he prays there, and, and he is experiencing such anxiety that Luke tells us that Jesus was in agony and that he was sweating so profusely, it was like someone had slashed him with a knife and the blood was pouring out of him. That's, that's how great uh, the, the drops of sweat were that were dropping from him. And then Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, and then all of his other friends ran away. One of them, Simon Peter, even denied knowing him several times. Jesus is then put through a series of bogus trials. He is lied about. He is hit. He is cursed. He's spat upon. And he's degraded in virtually every way imaginable. And all of that happened prior to the events starting where we started today in John 19.1. So the ancient church called this grouping of events from the Last Supper on Thursday to Jesus' crucifixion and death on Friday, the Passion of Christ. And beginning with the Last Supper, we can almost see God the Father's face turn away gradually from God the Son until on the cross, 
that absence of the Father's love is felt by Jesus so profoundly that he cries out the first words of Psalm 22. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how profound the absence of God the Father's love was from God the Son, that it would feel like he was completely forsaken. And what happens as the Father pulls back his love and grace from the Son? Well, where light is withdrawn, darkness floods in. As Jesus said to the Jewish authorities in Luke twenty-two fifty-three during his arrest, but this is your hour, and this is the power of darkness. And so what Jesus is saying there is, this, this is what darkness looks like. This is what it's like when everything unravels, when everything that could happen that's bad actually happens. So, I won't go into detail about the physical horrors of the torture that Jesus experienced or the emotional pain of being betrayed and abandoned by all of his friends or the unimaginable metaphysical darkness and loneliness of having the Father's perfect and complete love that the Son had known from before the foundations of the world being entirely withdrawn. But suffice it to say that if we were to use every adjective and adverb in the English language, we couldn't even come remotely close to describing the entirety of what Jesus experienced in those 20 or so hours of his passion. Theologians try to explain it by saying that in that time, all of God's wrath for all sin, for all of his people who ever existed, was poured out on one person, the sinless Son of God. It's like all, God, God was waiting for all of created history to pour out his wrath. And in that 20 hours, he poured it into a funnel directly on the head and on the back of his son, Jesus. Infinite wrath, infinite hatred against sin and sinner, infinite divine fury poured into one man all at once. So we come back to the question, why was it necessary that Jesus suffered? And, and note that this time the emphasis is on Jesus. Well, in short, it's necessary because the sinless God, the sinless Son of God, rather, had to suffer in order that those who trust in him would not. In other words, for those who know that they are sinners and trust in the atoning work of Jesus on their behalf on the cross, Jesus bore the infinite agony that we would be utterly unable to bear. And only Jesus could have suffered in our place because according to the Old Testament requirements for a sacrifice, the, the, the animal that had to be sacrificed needed to be perfect and without blemish. Any animals that were wounded or, or sick or blemished in any way couldn't be used as a sin sacrifice because only a perfect, spotless sacrifice would do. 
And that's why not one of us can atone for our own sin, let alone the sin of another. As Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. On our own, you and, and I are damaged goods. Not only the sin uh, that we've done on our own makes us unable to atone for ourselves, but the fact that uh, we were each born with a sin nature, as Pastor Evan talked about last week, that makes us unable to atone for our own sin. And even if we were somehow able to atone for our own sin, our self-sacrifice would utterly destroy us. Because, as we're told in Scripture several times, the consequences of sin is what? Death. And so, atoning for our own sin would mean that we would be annihilated. There would be no hope. And this brings up an important point, that none of us can atone for our own sin in the least way. We can't erase the tiniest bit of our indebtedness to God through our own good works of law-keeping. But I'll tell you, sometimes in, in, in the functional way that our faith works out, sometimes we think that that's how it works. We, we feel ashamed and separated from God after we sin, and that makes us feel that God is very far away from us and, and doesn't love us. And we assume that God can be manipulated and appeased by obedience, so we try to do some nice things to change his emotional state, or at least to stay away from him until his anger subsides. We, we, we treat him the same way as we would try to manipulate someone that uh, we had sinned against and felt ashamed around, uh, and we're just trying to appease to get them to like us again. But it doesn't work that way with God. We, we can't appease him through our own efforts. The only way to deal with God's wrath against sin is to bear it head on or to avoid it altogether. And so Jesus stepped in and fully bore God's wrath for all of his brothers and sisters. And now we avoid God's wrath altogether because divine justice has been satisfied through Jesus. Here's how the, the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 10, verses 14 and, and following. And it's up on the screen. For by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, saying, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Jesus was not just the perfect offering. He was the only offering for the sin of his people. And through his suffering, he took on himself the suffering we accrued for all time, past, present, and future. Brothers and sisters, we, we all try to make up to God for the sin that we've done. And We'll talk about this briefly a little later on. There's a good way to do that, which is called repentance, but there is a sinful way to do that, which is called being manipulative. We, we don't make God happy by doing a few nice things to please him. Two minutes of obedience doesn't make up for even one second of sin. 
And yet God, because he loves us, has provided a way for us to be fully forgiven. Fully forgiven. And that is through his son, Jesus. And that leads us to our second question. Why was it necessary for Jesus to die? We just talked about why it was necessary that he suffered, but why did he have to die too? Well, as we just said, Jesus suffered on our behalf, but he also died on our behalf. A sacrifice for sin wouldn't be a sacrifice unless it gave up its life and shed its blood in order that another would live as a result. And the problem of death is something with which human beings have been burdened for millennia. Ever since the events of Genesis 3, where our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God and incurred the sentence decreed by God in Genesis 2.17 when God warned them that if they disobeyed him, they would what? Surely die. Physical death is not the only way in which the consequence of death for sin impacts us, though. The reality is sin corrupts everything in us and everything around us. Nothing functions Nothing works the way it should. And there are many examples, but here are just five, and they're up on the screen. Sin impacts our minds. And it distorts the ways in which we think about ourselves, about God, and about other people, and about life in general. We never perceive ourselves or others as we truly are. We we think our motives are better than they are. We think others' motives are impure. We think others are out to get us. We think that we are uh, acting in good faith more often than we genuinely do. Sin impacts our bodies. We age. We get sick. Our bodies get weaker and weaker until they finally stop working. Sin impacts our desires. We, We often want too much of good things or we want good things to use them selfishly. That's what James talks about in James uh, uh, chapter 4. And sometimes we want bad things because we've lost our moral center and we think the bad things will actually bring us good. Sin impacts the natural world around us. Disasters, earthquakes, wild animals, famine, disease, all these things are the result of sin disrupting God's good created order. And then sin impacts human relationships. It only took a few minutes after Adam and Eve sinned in order for them to turn against each other. It's freaky how quickly that happened. And just go back and look at the first part of uh, Genesis chapter 3 to see that that is literally the next thing that's recorded after Adam and Eve sinned. Their eyes are opened and they realize that they're naked, and then they hide from each other. Well, that was bad enough, but then it only took a few years for one of their sons, Cain, to kill his brother, Abel. And all kinds of relational suffering have resulted ever since. And so these are only five ways that sin corrupts us and everything around us, and and the only way to bring an end to the Corrupting effects of sin is to destroy sin itself. 
and then to perform a hard reset of all creation. So Jesus decisively destroyed the power of sin and death with his own death on the cross. Because God in his mercy placed us in Christ. And, and you see those two words together in this funny little phrase throughout uh, so many of Paul's and John's letters in the New Testament, this, this term, in Christ, which means that we are, we participate with Christ in a supernatural way. We, we participate with him in his new life, but um, what we're talking about today is, is his death. And one of the things Paul talks about is we also participate with him in a spiritual way in his death. When Jesus suffered and died on the cross, we benefit in a very unique and very personal way because we participate with him in his death. Listen, and this is something that's hard to understand, but listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it in Romans 6, verses 6 through 11. And again, it's up on the screen. This is what the apostle says. He says, We know that our old self was crucified in him, in, in Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's key. One who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul says here is that since God included us in Christ when Jesus died on the cross, the sin that Jesus bore in his body on the cross that belonged to us also died. So just try to wrap your, your heads around that for a second. The sin that belonged to us also died with Christ on the cross. And as a result, for anyone who's in Christ, the ultimate power of sin over that person has been broken. And the ultimate penalty of that sin has also been paid once for all. Now, that's a hard thing to grapple with because we know from experience that we continue to experience all of those effects of, of sin that I talked about a few minutes ago. We, we continue to experience everything around us falling apart, everything around us being broken. We continue to struggle with sin ourselves. So if truly we were, were included in Christ, if he died once for all, and, and put our sin to death, why do we still struggle with sin and struggle with its effects? Well, Paul goes on to talk about that in the remainder of Romans 6, and then in chapters 7 and 8, and we don't have time to go in, into that uh, this morning. But suffice it to say that in Christ, God did two things for us. 
One is God gave us the power to defeat sin, the, the, the controlling power of sin in our lives. And the other thing is that he took away the ultimate punishment of sin from us. So what does it mean that he gives us power to defeat sin in our lives? It doesn't mean that defeating temptation and avoiding sin is an easy matter. There's not one of us that doesn't struggle with temptation or fall into sin every day. And if you're anything like me, you tend to fall into the same patterns of sin over and over and over and over again. And you know it's wrong, and you want to avoid it, but it seems much more difficult than it needs to be in order to do the right thing and to walk in repentance. It's not easy. It, it causes pain to avoid sin. It can seem like a little death to us every time we say no to temptation. But each time we do that, in the strength that God provides, this is what happens. We proclaim the power of Christ in us, and we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in putting sin to death more and more completely in our lives. There's something profound. There's a lot of things that are profound that Paul says, but he says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that when Christ died on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, talking about uh, the, the, the evil uh, spirits, the, the, the devil and all the demons um, who the Lord allows to have authority uh, over his creation for a time. Paul says that he disarmed them and put them to open shame, to public shame. He humiliated them by triumphing over them on the cross. And you know, every time we say no to sin, Every time we say, I am not going to believe the lie that is in my heart right now. I am going to believe what God says is true. We have a little victory like that that takes place. Not just in our own little private sphere, but in the heavenly realms. Because we are cooperating with Jesus Christ... And and this is a spoiler for next week, but Jesus didn't remain dead. He rose from the dead and is now reigning with his Father in heaven. And, And we testify along with him that, yes, his power is more than just a mind game. His power is more than just our free will. His power is much more than our good intentions. His power is transformative. His power is coming to completely make us over, to make us new, to make us the new creation that Paul says we are in 2 Corinthians. Every time we say no to sin, we testify with Jesus and with the faithful angels in the heavenly realms that Satan and his minions have been defeated. 
And the more that we cooperate with the Spirit in destroying sin in our lives, this is a secondary effect, the, the more our minds, the more our bodies, the more our desires, the more our relationships, and the more our world is transformed. And this is what Paul talks about. I'm, I'm giving Paul a lot of props today. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Church, let the way you live your lives be an act of worship to the Lord. Set your minds on things that are consistent with who you are in Christ. You, you are no longer trying to eke out uh, uh, just a, a meager, pitiful existence on your own, just trying to get through from, today, from day to day. You are sons and daughters of God. You are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. You are being transformed bit by bit into people who will reign with Christ forever. And that reign begins today because in Christ you have power to put sin to death in your life. You are exercising the holy power that your King Jesus has delegated to you for his glory. And so the, the third question, what does Jesus' suffering and death mean for us? And as we wrap up, let's look at this uh, by, by thinking through a few ways that um, the, these things roll out in our lives. Maybe the idea of receiving benefits of being included in Christ is new to you. But it's the only way that a believer can actually grow in repentance, in wisdom, in faith, and in faithfulness. We, we can't, uh, you know, being a Christian isn't being a member of a club. It's not saying, I agree with these basic principles for making life work. Being a Christian means that you that you stop living, that you give your life to Jesus and allow him to reign in this world through you. And so here are three ways uh, that that can work out. So first, there are consequences, consequences rather, to God's grace for the believer. Jesus didn't suffer and die on our behalf simply that we could go on living like that never happened. And this is one of the issues that the early church dealt with. And so Paul asks this rhetorical question of them in Romans 2.4. He asks, Do you, church, presume on the riches of his kindness, meaning of God's kindness, and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead to your repentance? So what he's saying here is, God isn't just being nice to you because he's a nice guy. God loves you and he shows you mercy. He shows you grace in order that you would be transformed. And not just do good things because you know it's the right thing to do, but you do good things because your DNA is being rewritten. You're being gradually made over 
into someone who is Christ. Don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The issue here is that God shows us mercy and grace in order that we would repent. I know we don't like to use that word because it sounds very dutiful and it means often that we can't enjoy the benefits of sin that we, we would like. But repentance has a twofold meaning. It means on the one hand to turn away from sin, but also to turn toward God in faith. And those two things simultaneously change not only our behavior, but our hearts. Do you see those changes happening in your own life? Would the people who know you best agree with that self-assessment? And if not, why do you think that is? And what would a more robust repentance look like for you? And if you're looking for some ways to apply that, um, you might want to look at Romans chapter 7 and 8. Paul gives a lot of practical application there. So second, part of repentance means counting yourself dead to sin and choosing to kill it again and again and again in your heart and in your mind and in your life because you know that Jesus suffered and died in order to set you free from that slavery. And it is slavery to be stuck in sin. Jesus said anyone who sins is a slave to sin. We can't control it. And that's a lie we often tell ourselves, that I can have a little bit of sin, I can have it enough in order to feel good, but I can stop anytime. That's not how sin works. Sin, sin's a death sentence. And Jesus had to die. Jesus had to pay that sentence for us in order that we would live. That means we can't hold on to our pet sins. We can't play around with sin, thinking that we're in control of it. And we need to ask others around us to actively participate with us in the process of putting sin to death in our lives. And then third, Jesus' suffering and death on our behalf isn't just meant for us alone. One of the reasons God has shown us grace and forgiveness in such a, a, a personal, intimate way is that he wants us to access the resurrection power at work within us to live out the gospel powerfully in the lives of other people, in our family, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in faith, and, and even in front of our enemies. God wants us to be willing to lay down our lives sacrificially in order that others would know his love for them as they see it communicated through our sacrificial love and, sac and service rather, on their behalf. And that happens through choosing to forgive someone who's hurt us. It, it happens through showing patience and deference to someone who insists on their own way instead of you insisting on your own way or by choosing to move towards someone who's on the periphery of your life or community or the church. It, it means like reaching out to someone today in this room whom you don't know before you leave, to welcome them, to get to know them a little bit, maybe even to invite them uh, out for a cup of coffee or, or to your home meeting. It means reaching out to the least of these, 
Because you know what? Something else Paul said about us in Ephesians is that we weren't just sick with sin. We were dead in our trespasses. We were stinking, rotting corpses of no value to God. And yet, God chose to love us. He chose to look at those from, from Ezekiel 37, those dry bones with flies all around them. And he breathed life into us by giving us the life of his son, Jesus. He did that because he loves us. And he did, did, did that, rather, because he wants us to enjoy him and to be with him forever. Brothers and sisters, he wants us to not only rest in that love ourselves, but he wants us to share it with others around us in order that they would know that God's kindness toward us and toward them is meant for their repentance. And so, why don't we affirm the fact that Jesus died on our behalf and the fact that we have received inestimable benefits from his death and resurrection by standing and reading together the words of the Apostles' Creed. Let's read this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.